The briefing is brought to you in association with the Sustainable Cities in Action Forum at Expo City Dubai. The Sustainable Cities in Action Forum at Expo City Dubai is a place for city leaders, developers, architects and designers to come together and innovate for the future of urban spaces. It's an opportunity for the Global South to convene in the Global South. It's a testbed for real-world solutions that will shape the future of people and planet. You can hear from the innovative thinkers and inspirational voices that drove the narrative at this year's edition by listening to Monocle's special episodes of The Briefing, recorded live at Expo City Dubai in March. Find and listen to the shows now at monocle.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Sustainable Cities in Action Forum 2024. Collaborate. Innovate. Transform. You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 7th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, broadcasting to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up on today's programme, Human Rights Watch has called for an arms embargo on Israel and Palestinian armed groups, whilst international demands for a ceasefire grow ever louder. Then... He rambled, he hurled insults, but we expected that. Donald Trump sticks to his usual playbook during a New York court appearance in his civil fraud case. Would anyone else get away with that behaviour? WeWork has filed for bankruptcy. Bad management or is it a victim of our changing relationship with the office? Then... The flux of migration has been something that uh, the EU has failed to really deal with. As Italy outsources the shelter of migrants to Albania, our Europe editor-at-large assesses the asylum seeker situation and will be in the UAE to experience Dubai Design Week. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Israel would consider tactical little pauses in fighting to facilitate the entry of aid or the exit of hostages from the Gaza Strip, but again rejected calls for a ceasefire, despite international pressure. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned on Monday that Gaza is becoming a graveyard for children, calling for an urgent ceasefire. Both Israel and Hamas have rebuffed mounting calls for a halt in fighting. Well, Yasmin Ahmed is UK Director for Human Rights Watch and joins me on the phone now. Yasmin, many thanks for coming on the briefing. Uh, Human Rights Watch has called for an international arms embargo on all warring parties in Israel and Gaza. Can you give us more detail on that? Yes. Um, well, we've made very clear that the protection of civilians must be absolutely paramount. And what we know and we have documented is there are ongoing serious violations and war crimes that have been, have been and continue to be committed by both parties to the conflict. And what we're saying is that immediately all arms, all states should be and others should be stopping uh, providing any arms or military equipment both to Israel as well as to Hamas and other Palestinian armed groups. 
So we know there have been many calls for a ceasefire in the conflict, including the withdrawal of diplomats, the strong words from the UN Secretary General and hundreds and thousands of people marching all over the world. Do you think this, coupled perhaps with your cry for, for, for disarming, for an arms embargo, will result in action? Well, we've, uh, you know, we've, we very much hope that is the case. And we know that in other situations when we have pushed for this, that it has happened. But there are many other situations where the international community, unfortunately, has been impotent. Now, what we've seen in this situation is um, very, very unfortunately, is that the international community and particularly Western leaders have not um, really been strong enough in terms of they have certainly been calling out what Hamas has been, what Hamas has been, and continues to do. But we have not heard in the same fever to calling out Israel for the crimes that they have and continue to commit against Palestinians in Gaza. I mean, noting that one of those crimes is the continued siege of the entire area, but also other ongoing crimes that are happening as we speak. Mm. I mean, Israel isn't alone in rejecting a ceasefire. Hamas, it would appear, is not keen either. I wonder why that is, and, and would a ceasefire benefit Hamas? Well, what I mean, as a human rights organisation and one that really speaks about protection of civilians, what we're saying very clearly is that all parties to the conflict must comply with their international obligations, including international humanitarian law obligations. That is both Hamas and also Israel, and that states, uh, including the US, the UK and other states, should not be doing anything that risks their complicity in those abuses. So what we are hoping now is that a call for an arms embargo, which should be implemented by all states and on all parties to the conflict, will have the impact of at least protecting civilian lives. Mm. Now, Netanyahu has said that Israel could take security responsibility for Gaza after the war. What does he mean by that? Well, what we know, I mean, first of all, it's very important to note that whilst the Israeli um, uh, military are not on the ground in Gaza or prior to September, uh, sorry, the um, October the 7th, they weren't on the ground, that we we as a human rights watch, as well as many other organisations, have noted that Israel continues to occupy Gaza because it continues to have complete control over sea, air and land borders other than the Rafah crossing. So essentially, and we know that it is blockaded Gaza for the last 17 years. So whilst it doesn't have ground troops there, obviously there are still ground incursions happening, but prior to 7th of October, it still had responsibilities and it continues to have responsibilities to the people in Gaza by virtue of being an occupying power. And those responsibilities have not only been breached continuously, but in this context, the fact that they are not allowing any humanitarian assistance other than a trickle in is in fact a war crime that they are committing against an occupied people that they have responsibility for. Obviously, if um, Israel then uh, has permanent troops uh, in the occupied territory, in particular in Gaza, we obviously would be very concerned about what that means. We've seen the ongoing violations that have happened, including war crimes that have happened in occupied Palestinian territories in the West Bank, which are continuing to happen, including the continuation of further settlements and forced displacement of Palestinians, as well as the suppression of their civil and political rights. 
So obviously the ongoing occupation, whether it be through land, sea and air or on the ground, is very worrying given the record of over half a century of violent occupation by Israel. Mm. And so what does all this mean within international law and can we hope for any kind of redress eventually? Well, we know that the International Criminal Court has an ongoing investigation against what's ha- in relation to what's happening in the occupied Palestinian territories. That was opened in 2021 and it dates back to incidents that happened in 2014 and it is ongoing. And Kareem Khan, the prosecutor, has been very clear that incidents that are happening and ongoing now will be part of his investigation. So we, we, we do know and parties to the conflict should be, including Israel as well as Hamas and other armed groups that are involved, should be very on notice that the International Criminal Court is investigating. We also know other states around the world have an obligation to exercise what we call universal jurisdiction, so to investigate and whether sufficient evidence prosecute people that come onto their territory who may have committed crimes. And that includes for example, dual nationals. So we know that there are Israelis as well as we know there may be other nationals that have gone to fight in this conflict. And we know that there is um, a potential, uh, you know, there's a potential for prosecutions to happen in countries in relation to that. We also know that there's activity happening at the UN General Assembly, but we are hoping that international community will respond as it needs to respond. I mean, we have heard, as you have noted, ongoing calls, calls that I have never heard from organisations like the ICRC, MSF, other humanitarian organisations, as well as the UN saying enough is enough. We need to address this humanitarian crisis and catastrophe. Yasmin, thank you very much indeed. That was Yasmin Ahmed of Human Rights Watch. Now, here's Laura Kramer with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Regina. South Africa says it will withdraw all of its diplomats from Tel Aviv in protest over Israel's continued attacks on Gaza. Foreign Minister Naledi Pandoris says the government is extremely concerned at the killings of innocent civilians. Pretoria is a vocal supporter of the Palestinian cause. Russia has formally withdrawn from a post-Cold War arms control treaty, which set limits on quantities of weapons and military equipment. Moscow blamed NATO enlargement, saying it had led to member countries openly circumventing the agreement's terms. Top diplomats from the G7 group of industrialized nations are in Tokyo and are expected to hold virtual talks with the Ukrainian foreign minister this week. The war between Israel and Hamas and the humanitarian crisis in the Gaza Strip are expected to dominate discussions in the Japanese capital. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Thank you, Laura. U.S. former President Donald Trump spent almost four hours on the witness stand in a civil fraud trial in a Manhattan federal courthouse yesterday. The judge has already ruled that the Trump organization committed fraud, and this trial is to determine the penalties. Before his testimony, Trump spoke to reporters and attacked the New York prosecutors who brought the case against him, calling them political operatives. It's a very sad situation for our country. We shouldn't have this. This is for third world countries. And it's very unfair. It's very unfair. But in the meantime, the people of the country understand it. They see it. And they don't like it. They don't like it. Because it's uh, political warfare, as you would call it, or political lawfare. Well, listening to that was Washington-based reporter Simon Marks. Simon, welcome to the show. What were Trump's key arguments beyond that rambling? 
Well, I mean, essentially, Georgina, mostly his key argument was that rambling uh, that you heard there outside the courtroom, but he actually brought it into the courtroom to the great fury of the judge at various points during his time uh, on the witness stand because the judge argued that Donald Trump was attempting to turn the courtroom itself into the stage for essentially the speeches that he makes at his political rallies. This is all a sham. It's political interference. It's aimed at derailing his efforts to seek formal more years in the Oval Office. But in terms of the substance uh, that was discussed during that pretty tense uh, four hours, uh, Donald Trump at times appeared to acknowledge that he had played a role, uh, at least in uh, weighing in from time to time for, uh, to some of the valuations of his properties that were submitted as uh, collateral to support applications for loans. Remember, the state of New York's case here is that Donald Trump and his business empire overinflated the value of their assets in order to attract loans at favourable rates. Donald Trump said, uh, I would look at them, speaking about the valuations, I would see them and I would maybe on occasion have some suggestions. Now that's obviously uh, a phrase that uh, requires interpretation, but the interpretation that the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, who's bringing this case places on it, is that Donald Trump is essentially confirming that he put his thumb on the scale uh, and uh, fiddled some of the valuations that were offered to banks. Mm. But uh, Donald Trump equally defended himself by saying that he's being accused here uh, of a victimless crime. The banks, he said, all got paid back their loans in full. He maintains that the banks not only aren't complaining uh, about the way in which he treated them, but he even suggested that uh, at least uh, some of them maybe willing to take the witness stand uh, in his defence. So there were definitely elements of the testimony uh, that cut both ways, some of it in favour uh, of the state that is bringing this civil lawsuit, but some of it also uh, supporting Donald Trump's claim that this is persecution because essentially he's being pursued for a victimless crime. Mm. And I mean, as we've as we've noted, he repeatedly clashed with the judge. Uh, he has uh, not only talked about this political witch hunt or law warfare, as he calls it. Uh, but he's also a levelled personal attacks at, at members of, of, of the courtroom. Isn't this contempt of court and what would be the usual sanction for disrespecting court officials in this way and ignoring a gagging order? Uh, well, there's no question that he could have damaged himself uh, further through some of his antics in the court yesterday, and certainly the judge in the case, uh, who at various points uh, was re reportedly eye-rolling, looking at the sky as Donald Trump in, uh, engaged in these ad hominem attacks against uh, Letitia James, the Attorney General. He called her a political hack. He turned his fire on uh, the chief prosecutor, who was asking questions of Donald Trump, saying that he ought to be ashamed of himself uh, and also criticised the judge for having uh, prejudged the outcome of this case by uh, earlier uh, having uh, ruled that Donald Trump and his business organisation uh, committed fraud, uh, which is why this is essentially the penalty phase of all of this, as the uh, state of New York seeks $250 million in uh, retribution uh, and also wants to bar Donald Trump, his sons uh, and other uh, members of his uh, inner circle from ever doing business in the state of New York again. So the stakes here are very high, but they're also high uh, in terms of Donald Trump's conduct. There are gag orders that have already been put in place to try and prevent uh, Donald Trump and his lawyers 
lawyers from attacking uh, the judge and the judge's uh, clerk. Uh, and there were moments during yesterday's testimony when Donald Trump's lawyers uh, seemed to be asking for guidance from the judge in the case about precisely how far they could go and how far their defendant could go. Uh, and at one point, the judge, in some frustration, said, um, he can attack me, but I just want him to answer the question because the judge was getting increasingly frustrated that Donald Trump was seeking to run out the clock by uh, engaging in political statements and essentially using the court as a political rally. There are possibilities that set further sanctions can be taken uh, against Donald Trump, but this is not a criminal case. Uh, so the rules governing it are different. The judge is allowed to make what, he, what, is, what is known as a negative inference uh, from, uh, for example, Donald Trump's failure to answer questions, but the precise rules governing the sanctions that he can face are more complex than they would be if this was a straightforward criminal trial, because it's a it's a civil action being brought against him. But do the rules still apply then for ignoring gagging orders? I mean, is there p- the possibility that he could be jailed for that? Would anybody else be under these circumstances? Well, I think jail is perhaps a bit of a stretch. Uh, his own lawyers yesterday argued, as they put it, that as the former president and soon-to-be-next chief executive of the United States, Donald Trump should be given some kind of leeway. But certainly there are the possibility uh, of fines being levelled against Donald Trump, uh, of the judge making those negative inferences. Uh, and really the judge in the case is particularly focused on constraining Donald Trump from engaging in personal attacks against the court staff uh, because he's done that previously on social media and in uh, remarks and speeches that he's made Uh, and there is some evidence that the judge's efforts uh, to try and uh, constrain Donald Trump have worked to a degree to the point that when there was a break in proceedings uh, for lunch on Monday Donald Trump emerging from the courtroom uh, strolled past the cameras gathered outside it and uh, made the sign that he was zipping his lip uh, and that he wasn't going at that moment to engage in any kind of back and forth because the testimony was still underway and it seems that perhaps in that regard the lawyers just for once on his side had been able to invade him to try and control some of his outbursts. Simon thank you very much indeed that's Simon Marks there and this is The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Now, Italy has announced that it will build two centres in northwest Albania to house migrants rescued at sea by Italian boats, although those that land in Italy will remain in the country. It's the first time a country in Europe has outsourced the housing of asylum seekers to a non-EU state. Reducing the amount of migrants was a key election promise for Giorgia Maloney and her right-wing nationalist Brothers of Italy party, though under her watch numbers have nearly doubled year on year. Well, earlier I spoke to our Europe editor-at-large, Ed Stocker, for more on this story. This is an agreement, as you say, between Eddie Rama, the Prime Minister of Albania, a socialist uh, Prime Minister, it must be added, and of course uh, the far-right's Giorgia Maloney, of Italy, it had been rumoured that she was sort of looking for a another country to reach this sort of agreement with. It is the first of its kind 
in terms of an EU nation uh, seeking a non-EU state uh, to to make an agreement with. And obviously, it's quite easy to see uh, parallels with the British government and uh, Rishi Sunak's outsources or at least attempts to outsource its migrant issue to the African nation of Rwanda. Interesting also, Jordine, to see how the EU reacted to this agreement that was reached yesterday. It called on international law and national law to be respected. There are question marks, of course, about how the construction of these centres, which are expected to be operational around spring of 2024, how this may work in practice, because obviously under law, there's uh, an agreement that really uh, migrants should seek help in the country in which they end up, of course, which would be Albania. In this sense, uh, you know, there could be as many as 39,000 migrants a year uh, being received in these centres. And and this would be migrants that have been picked up by Italian uh, law enforcement rather than those that have been picked up in the Mediterranean, for example, by uh, NGO boats that are operating in those waters, Georgina. What's in it for Albania? A lot's in it for Albania, actually. Albania and Italy uh, have been courting each other for a while now, and they both have something to gain out of it. Italy, for example, has been perhaps looking to Albania to, to at least help with some of its energy issues. So there have been energy discussions. In terms of Albania, it's already a member of NATO, but it's an aspiring EU member state. And so by having close relationships with Italy, it's almost like Italy becomes its sponsor for EU adhesion. So Eddie uh, Rama uh, makes no secret of his desire to be part of the EU. And Italy is in a way Uh, if you like, this bridge. Giorgio Maloney visited the country last year. Albania has been in the news a lot in Italy, in fact, because a lot of Italians have been uh, holidaying there due to the cost of living crisis, a huge spike in Italian tourists there. Maloney visited in August, had a, a meeting with Rama and famously paid the bill of an Italian family who left a, a restaurant without paying the bill. That made the headlines over the summer. So this has been part of a a long process, really, of, of of the two countries getting closer together. There are some historical and linguistic links. Uh, a, a lot of uh, Albanians speak Italian. It's not so far from Italy. And so interesting to see how this really develops in, in the coming weeks and what the kickback is from the EU. Mm. I mean, Germany, too, is seeking to reduce the number of asylum seekers. We know that Chancellor Olaf Schulz wants to stem support for the far right. And so he's agreed on a tougher migration policy and new funding for refugees with the heads of Germany's 16 states. Now, this just came this morning after hours of negotiation. What's the German plan? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think just to zoom out for a moment, uh, it has to be noted that the issue of of people of arriving in Europe, the flux of migration has been something that uh, the EU has failed to really deal with over the years. There have been agreements and failed agreements over the years. You know, we saw the EU make an agreement with Turkey There was uh, 60 million euros of EU funding destined for the Tunisian government for it to uh, try and uh, hold back migrants. That money was returned. 
a reflection of the political situation, if you like, in Tunisia. We we have seen, I guess you could argue, even from these so-called uh, more liberal um, countries like Germany in terms of their stance towards migration, we have seen a hardening of lines, if you like, and, and perhaps a recognition that the plans at the moment haven't worked. But what we haven't seen, uh, whether you talk about Italy, whether you talk about Germany, is, is a sort of consensus. You have different members of the bloc pulling in different directions. And so this is an ongoing issue uh, for the EU and something really beside these sort of, I guess, individual acts from member states like Germany, like Italy, there needs to be an overall bloc consensus if uh, these issues are going to be dealt with. And of course, you know, Georgina, you can also make the argument that beyond, you know, trying to uh, stop the flux of migration more should and could be done to look at some of the root causes of why uh, so many people uh, are looking to leave their homelands and travel uh, to the European Union. Ed Stocker there. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. WeWork, the company founded in 2010, once worth $47 billion, has filed for bankruptcy. The company's business involves taking long-term leases on office buildings and selling short-term membership to offices geared towards co-working. Well, Rahaf Hafush is a digital anthropologist and the best-selling author of books on working culture, including Hustle and Float, Reclaim Your Creativity and Thrive in a World Obsessed with Work. Rahaf, many thanks for joining us. The company's problems go back a while. Can you tell us what went wrong? I mean, this is such a complicated story, Hi, Georgina. Uh, I think there's a there's a couple of things that we need to know. So, first of all, in 2019, WeWork wanted to go public. Um, it was at the time one of the largest private tenants in Manhattan. It was one of the most valuable startups. I mean, valuations were somewhere around like 47 billion dollars. But then, as the due diligence process unfolded, all of these governance issues, uh, internal conflicts, personality clashes with the uh, controversial founder Adam Newman sort of tanked um, that entire process and ended up having uh, Mr. Newman step down. So that I mean that's a very complicated story that we could talk about for a while. And the other thing that happened was that um, you know the pandemic happened. So all of a sudden people were staying at home. Um, they were not working outside in other locations, and so um, their fees plummeted. The demand for their services plummeted. And I think the last that I saw, the company is now currently valued at less than fifty million dollars. So do you think it's indicative of our changing work patterns more broadly or is it specific to to this particular company? I mean, I think what's happening with WeWork is reflective of some of the larger struggles that commercial real estate is going through. It's not just, if you remember WeWork, um, they rented from landlords, right? They had their own property sometimes, but in, on, in many cases they rented. And so I think this is indicative of a lot of the struggles that some of the landlords are having, in which case, you know, in post-pandemic world, we're still, people don't necessarily want to be in the office as much. 
However, I also think that the reason this has um, evolved this way for WeWork is that the way that their financial strategy and how they sort of approached running their startup unfolded was very, very risky. And for people that don't know, they had big funders, including SoftBank, that just poured um, you know, hundreds of millions and millions of dollars into this company before the company was even really profitable. So there's this like ideology of funding startups in some cases where somebody will say, look, let's just give them all the money they need so they can completely destroy their competitors and we'll figure out that pesky business of a profitable business model later. And what happens to members who've signed up and paid to use WeWork Spaces? So from what I understand right now, um, uh, certain services will not be disrupted. I think the situation is still so new. I believe there are certain key locations where business will proceed as usual, and then everybody else is kind of waiting for more specific updates about their individual location. Rahaf Hafush, many thanks indeed for joining us. This is The Briefing. One of the United Arab Emirates flagship design events begins today. Dubai Design Week runs until Sunday and our design editor, Nick Manise, joins more than 500 designers, architects and creative practitioners who are in the city to experience the commissioned projects, installations, exhibitions, talks and workshops. Uh, Nick, uh, what's the focus of Dubai Design Week? Hi, Georgina. Um, The focus is certainly on, I guess, celebrating... uh, the regions, designers, makers, craftspeople, uh, and architects. So it's really, I guess, the uh, regional flagship event for for designers and creatives looking to to share their work. And it's, yeah, as you said, it kind of kicked off this morning and it was a little bit quiet, I'm going to be honest, on the streets of Dubai Design District when I rocked up at 9am for the opening. But by midday, it was uh, absolutely flooded with people um, interacting with uh, a host of different exhibitions uh, and uh, pavilions and displays which have been commissioned for the event. And what have you seen so far? Uh, I mean, I think just wandering through Dubai Design District, which is sort of where it's headquartered, it's it's a, a relatively new, you know, five, ten-year-old neighbourhood that's really focused on uh, providing office space and, and working spaces for those in the creative industry. So that's where the that's where the event is kind of focused and there's a a host of installations as I mentioned um, kind of installed throughout the area Uh, so I mean I was just sort of walking in amongst them there's uh, an amazing uh, pavilion by a a young uh, Emirati architect called Abdallah al-Mullah which is made of uh, palm uh, tree materials. So everything from a, a woven roof to uh, actual palm tree trunks used as uprights and then um, palm trees converted into floorboards uh, alongside, I guess, more ephemeral installations. There was a, a brilliant one uh, called Flowing Threads by Irene Hassan, who's a Palestinian textile designer, uh, and, and she's essentially installed... Uh, a series of curtains uh, along the main pedestrian eye street in Dubai Design District, which uh, people can sort of wander through and, and really be transported to another place. Mm. Uh, so they're, they're, I guess, some of my, my highlights that I've seen. But really, it, it, the whole district is, is kind of buzzing with yeah, amazing installations. Yeah. And finally, Nick, we know that, of course, uh, COP28 is coming up. And I wonder if the works there are a sort of foreshadowing of, of the theme of that. Are we seeing a, a big uh, environmental push here? 
Hugely, but uh, and I wouldn't necessarily say that that's unique to uh, Dubai Design Week as an event. It's certainly a theme that is is travelling uh, through design events across the globe. And I mean, some people certainly did talk about COP28 when I was chatting to them about their work. But I think what we're what we're seeing more than anything is just an awareness and a, and, a, and a, a, I guess an eagerness to use materials that are perhaps more environmentally minded maybe they're, they're locally sourced or maybe they are using waste products i mean there was uh, this beautiful uh, installation by a designer called shabir mir he's pakistani but he's based in dubai it was called ring of life uh and it was about using a waste gagur which are the traditional fishing nets um and he's essentially turned it into this sculptural piece and and whilst that might be perhaps leaning more towards art rather than design in terms of functionality the fact that he's using this, uh, these wire fishing nets for a structure shows, I guess, the potential of, you know, identifying uh, waste materials in, in our you know, industrial processes and, and potentially looking at them uh, to apply them to, I don't know, whether that's building a new building or creating uh, a piece of furniture um, or even, even a sculptural structure like Shabir did. So I think that is is certainly coming through more than anything. It's, it's a willingness to explore and, I guess, find new ways of, of doing things. Nick, thank you very much indeed. That was Nick Munnies in Dubai. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing, which was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Laura Kramer. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Callum McLean. The Briefing will be back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>